Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, guys, welcome to the first edition of Dealmaker Diaries, advice for passive investors. So, guys, what this podcast does is provides insight into the nuances of commercial real estate investing and also mergers and acquisitions through interviews with some of the leading investors, sponsors, and managers in the U.S. and Japan. This groundbreaking series will forever change how the world is looking at investing. So it exposes for the first time ever the secrets and strategies dealmakers use to become and stay wealthy. And more importantly, it shows how those same strategies are used when investing yourself. So in each of these episodes, we're going to take a deep dive and interview experts in particular topics. So tune in, guys. We're going to be doing this twice a month. Tune in and learn and grow. So I think you guys will really like um, this first guest. He is a good friend of mine. Also, I consider him a mentor. It's uh, Mr. Michael Alpine. Mr. Michael Alpine is the CEO of um, Fusion Systems. Um, he started Fusion Systems in 1992 and led it to a $60 million acquisition by IMR Global Corporation in 1999. Fusion Systems was relaunched as a fintech IT specialist organization in 2005 and has offices throughout Asia. Michael has founded over 20 technology companies over the past 30 years in countries throughout Asia Pacific, including Japan, China, Hong Kong, Australia, and the United States with multiple successful exits during that time. He's also served two terms as president and one term as chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan from 2011 through 2013. And during that time, encompassing the period of the Tohoku earthquake and its aftermath. Michael's leadership was instrumental in the ACCJ being awarded the Peace Through Commerce Medal by the United States government. If you don't know, the Peace Through Commerce Medal originally commissioned in 1790 by Thomas Jefferson during his first tenure as the United States first Secretary of State. It's only been awarded to fewer than 20 individuals and organizations in its 223-year history. And it's the highest honor awarded by the U.S. Department of Commerce, recognizing those whose actions contribute to the promotion of peace and commerce through international trade by strengthening relationships between countries. Mr. Alpine has served on the boards of publicly listed technology firms in both the United States and Japan, and is currently an independent director for Helios, one of the world's leading regenerative medicine firms. Michael was also elected president of the Tokyo American Club in the late 2016, and currently maintains that prestigious office. He's also served as an advisory member to the Stanford University program on Regions of Innovation and Entrepreneurship and is a regular lecturer at Keio University Business School, Kyoto University, and also Temple University. Michael participates as a member of the Japan Board of Hope International and is an active in community service throughout Asia. So let's give Michael a warm welcome as we, show, as we bring him on to the call. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Hey, Donald, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you fine. Excellent. How are you How's today? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You have a, a lovely view of downtown Tokyo behind me, and you might hear some noise since I have the window open. <laughs> ah, no worries, no worries. So yeah, I know you're tight on time today, so why don't we jump into it? I've already introduced you to everyone. So Mike, why don't you tell us um, a little bit how you came into um, came into your own in the process of building businesses? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'm 59 years old. It's not clear to me I've come into my own yet, but I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you what I know. Uh, hopefully, it'll take more than five minutes for me to tell you everything I know. Uh, but I've been starting and running companies in Japan for the last. Um, 31 years. During that time, I've started uh, in excess of 20, probably close to 25 companies, some of which have been reasonably successful, some significantly less so. I think I have a decent batting average, but uh, certainly not at the all-star level. Uh, and my background is software. So I'm a, a software developer from uh, the 1970s and 80s. That's where I learned my, my trade. And most of the entities that I get involved with these days, and even for the last few decades, have been built around software development, systems integration, uh, technology implementation, uh, or some way of leveraging technology into business models that I find uh, interesting or potentially innovative. I've been in Japan for all those 31 years. I did live in China for a couple of years and commuted back and forth when we were setting up a company in Shanghai. But primarily my life, my livelihood, my family, my friends, my associates, my network are all here in Tokyo. Uh, and so most of my business activities tend to center around this physical location uh, inside the Yamanote-sen, inside the, the um, subway line that uh, circumnavigates Tokyo. Other than my entrepreneurial activities, uh, I've done a lot of community service in this market. I was the president of the American Chamber of Commerce here 2011-2012, uh, and I was chairman of that organization 2013. Uh, that's of interest primarily uh, because it's the largest American business organization in the world outside the United States but also because uh, we had the earthquake and uh, uh, tsunami and uh, nuclear issue here in 2011 while I was president. I'm currently president of the Tokyo American Club, uh, which is uh, essentially the nexus of American social and business activity in Japan. Uh, this is my fourth year. Uh, I was elected at the end of 2015. Uh, 2016. I've been serving since then. This will be my final year. I'm term limited uh, there. I'm also fortunate enough to sit on the board of a listed Japanese company, uh, which is engaged in development of regenerative medicine therapies. Uh, that's a very interesting and challenging role for me. I've been on the boards of other public companies, both in the U.S. and Japan. Again, primarily in the technology space, which is really my, my area of expertise. Uh, in terms of your question of how I, I came into my own, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I love being an entrepreneur. I love starting businesses. Um, I think 
what interests me is, is creating something out of nothing. And so I, I like early stage entrepreneurship. Uh, it's where I, I find challenge, fulfillment, value, uh, and interest. And so to the extent I can focus my activities around that, uh, I stay motivated, I, I stay hungry, I stay engaged, and I can do my best to contribute in those areas. I find I'm constantly learning. So, uh, you know, one of the things I keep in my mind all the time, I guess it's a paraphrase of uh, Mark Twain, where he said, it's not what you don't know, it's what you're sure you do know that's really dangerous. And so, definitely, definitely. It's very easy to get uh, into a, um, a self referential bubble where you actually think you know what you're doing. Uh, and that's when I usually make mistakes. It's when I feel like I'm on the edge where I'm challenging myself, where I'm not sure what to do next or how to do uh, that I really engage. I reach out to my network. I onboard new knowledge. Uh, I study and, and I really apply myself. And, and so I think I love your question. How did you or talk about coming into your own? Because I think it's a process, not an event. I don't think I've come into my own, but I think I'm in the process of coming into my own. Uh, and I intend to keep doing that for another, well, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, depending on various medical technologies and my own immune system. Uh, and that's what I'm about. Yeah, and I think that's important what you said about... Um being able to realize what you don't know and keeping people around you who can keep you grounded and continue to help you learn and grow. Because, yeah, that's when you make the huge mistakes thinking you know it all. So to add on to that, I think um, one of the most difficult things is, as you know, starting your own business. And I think to compound that, you're doing it in Japan, uh, a strange company different from your, your own. So what was most challenging for you as you started entrepreneurship in Japan? Mm. I think it's hard to start a business anywhere and make it successful, in my opinion. It's challenging. It's not supposed to be easy. I think there are certain unique idiosyncrasies in Japan. Uh, I think of the global major markets, Japan is a real outlier in terms of differentiation and idiosyncrasies. It's not only the language, uh, which is an obvious challenge, uh, but it's also the business culture and the social uh, conventions around business here that are, are, for me, quite different. And so when I, I grew up in, in Brooklyn and um, I worked on Wall Street for 10 years before I ever came to, to Japan. And so I learned my trade. I learned business in New York. And I always say, you know, I'm a sports guy, and so to me, business in New York was more like a boxing match. The bell rings, and the other guy is looking to take the head off. And so if you're not fully switched on while you're in the ring, you're going to end up in trouble. Whereas business in Japan, I find it's more like a marathon. You need to really just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep moving forward. It's not like a boxing match. It's not a kinetic, high-energy business environment. Uh, it's an environment that values stability, consistency, 
long-standing relationships, reliability, dependability. It's not as transactional as what I grew up in in New York. And so that, that was a significant challenge for me, adapting to that. I think more broadly, something that had nothing to do with Japan, per se, when I started hiring people and bringing them into my company, what I found was I was naturally hiring people that I, I liked, people I had an affinity for, people I had common interests with and, and shared values with. And it's very tempting to become friends and form deep friendships with those people. Uh, that's human nature. But it's also very hard to maintain the emotional distance as a CEO and founder if you're everyone's friend. And so as CEO, you cannot really be everyone's friend. Of course, you'll form some friendships amongst the group of people you associate with and people you work with. But I think it's a big mistake, at least in my case, uh, to try to be everyone's friend. Mm -hmm. It's more important to be respected as the CEO than to be liked as a friend. And so that emotional distancing, I found very, very challenging, that compartmentalization. Initially, uh, over the years, I think I've gotten used to it and I'm a bit better at it. Uh, but back in the early days, 30, 35 years ago, it was very, very difficult for me uh, to facilitate that. And that's interesting. So on that same lines of um, hiring employees, and especially talking about hiring, I think we all tend to lean toward hiring people that we like and that agree with us. So what would be your take on hiring employees that you don't necessarily get on with or like, but that you think can actually get the job done or, or do the job better than the person that you do like? Yeah, I think one of the mistakes that I've made as an entrepreneur, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs make this mistake, is you hire people who supplement your skill sets instead of complementing your skill sets. So as a software developer, one of the things that's natural for me is to hire more software developers. Uh, I can easily judge their capability, their talent, uh, their likelihood of being successful in my, in my business. But really, the marginal value of each additional software developer is diminishing. What I really need are people who complement my skills, not supplement my skills. And so what I find is if you look for those supplementary skill sets, very often they're people that come from different backgrounds, uh, have gone to uh, maybe a different path educationally or from a life path uh, than you have. And so it's a challenge and it's an adaptation, which is a lot of fun and is very interesting. Uh, I think it would be the same thing if I was an accountant. I'd be hiring other accountants or other CPAs as a natural predisposition. I'd gravitate towards people that have similar backgrounds and similar values. But frankly, especially in an early stage startup, the value of two accountants or two software developers is not double the value of one accountant or one software developer. It's mm -hmm. 1.7 or 1.8, whatever it is. It's some, some fraction of value. And then when you get to the third and the fourth and the fifth, what you find is you're really in a, a paradigm of diminishing returns. 
And so I tend to counsel people and, and keep reminding myself that for an early stage startup, what I really want are three, four, five people that have very different skill sets. Okay. And whether they're friends or not is less important than whether they have chemistry as a team and can work together. So one, one thing I think is important, Donald, is that they have similar dynamics in their personal lives. So they're roughly the same age, roughly the same status family-wise. And to clarify what I mean is, for me at age 59 with um, family, children that are grown and, and out of the house, short-term cash is much less important to me than certain aspects of doing the right thing, uh, corporate governance, uh, long-term value creation. But if I look at myself 30 years ago, I was very hungry for commercial success very quickly. And so if I had partnered with myself, if that was possible, there would have been friction because I, was, I, I would have had two key resources that were at different stages in their life and needed different things out of the business. And so what I tend to look for are roughly similar stages and uh, outlooks on life in general, and then complementary skill sets, which really allows for good chemistry, good working relationship. People aren't stepping on each other's toes uh, and are getting on with the job. Okay. Yeah, so that's interesting when you talk about how your looks like your goals have changed since you started started as an entrepreneur. So if you could go back to your 27, 28 year old self, what what would you, or I guess a better way to ask that question, what do you wish you had known when you first started out as an entrepreneur? Two things. Um, one is I wish I had been more highly sensitized to the criticality of cash flow. So intellectually, I sort of understood cash flow was important, but important is a vast understatement uh, for early stage entrepreneurs. And the second thing is, I wish I had been better at and qualifying people that would be successful in my environment. Okay. So instead of judging people based strictly on their talent, their accomplishments, um, and their general uh, work. What was really important, what I didn't understand is how they could apply those skills and that value and that experience in the environment I was creating. So I think those two things I, I had a very shallow understanding of when I was 27 or 28. And I've come to understand over time that those two things are really, really critical. And if I had known them earlier, it would have been better. Um, there are a lot of things I didn't know. There are a lot of things I still don't know, but those two things stand out really for me as, as important aspects of learning over the last few decades. Okay. And, and of course, like you just said, so you've been doing this for the better part of three decades now. So you've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, you've met a lot of entrepreneurs, you've watched a lot of businesses succeed, you've watched a lot fail. What do you think, what's the most common reason in your experience for people failing or giving up while building a business? I think the, the quality that's needed is a certain grit or 
stubbornness. And I think one of the problems is very smart people are often not well suited to entrepreneurship. And so luckily I'm not very smart. And so I don't run into this that often, but when I've dealt with very smart people, very intelligent, accomplished people, they look at entrepreneurship as almost an equation that needs a solution. So if they can clarify the variables, understand the formula, they will come up with the answer. But actually entrepreneurship, in my experience, is not like that at all. It's more about a series of correlations than it is a specific equation that needs solving. And those evolve over time as the business environment evolves, as you evolve, uh, as your client base changes and grows or shrinks, as your employees and partners and team members come on board and leave. And so I think that adaptability, not only intellectual adaptability, but emotional flexibility are really the key attributes of successful entrepreneurship. Uh, and very often the businesses that fail, in my experience, including my own that have failed, have been because I refused to adapt or wasn't quick enough to adapt or uh, perhaps was too invested emotionally in the concept of the business. Uh, and I think that's natural. When you spend a lot of time and energy coming up with a business plan and validating a business model and developing some technology and bringing it to market, you've got a huge investment, not only financially, but emotionally, physically, uh, academically, even spiritually in that endeavor. But successful entrepreneurship has a huge, huge degree of luck to it. And I think you need to be prepared to number one, take advantage when opportunities present themselves uh, via luck or, or third parties. But also when your luck's running against you, I think you need to be prepared to really adapt and fundamentally change what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and be reactive to the market in a very dynamic sense. And so I, I think sometimes businesses fail, uh, they fail for a lot of reasons, but I think fundamentally it's that lack of adaptability, lack of, lack of emotional flexibility amongst the founding team that causes businesses to perhaps delay in their adaptation and fail. Now, of course, there's a huge amount of execution risk in business, especially early stage entrepreneurship. Um, you know, sometimes I say ideas are a dime a dozen. Everyone's got ideas. They're really not worth much. What's worth something is the ability to execute. And a large aspect of execution is just hard work. And so whether you're the smartest or the most educated or the most accomplished or the most experienced, those things help. But I think if you're the hardest working, that's something that's totally under your control. You can make sure that nobody out there is outworking you. And I think that's what I tend to focus on is if I fail, it won't be for lack of hard work and diligence in any of the endeavors I've, I've entered. Uh, it might be because of my lack of capability or lack of knowledge or, or lack of a lot of things, but it won't be through uh, lack of hard work. Yeah, I think that's important what you said about 
In fact, I was just reading something yesterday where it talks about, yeah, ideas are a dime a dozen and what you need is execution. And I think another thing that's key in that is your team, right? I mean, especially if you're if you're good on a business and especially raising capital, right? If you're raising capital and you're talking about how good your idea is, I mean, the investors want to know, well, who's your team? Because if you have just an idea by yourself, chances, chances are they don't right. want to give you money if you, just, you don't if you don't have a team with you that can execute that idea. Right. That That's a critical point, Donald. So I sometimes work with younger entrepreneurs and they'll say to me or they'll ask this question that essentially you've just asked, which is what is what do I need to learn? What's the gap analysis between where I am and where I need to be? And the thing is, there's one skill. It is the single most important skill any entrepreneur can learn. And it's hard to learn, but it's by far more valuable. And that's the skill of making other people want to work with you. I think as individuals, we're very limited as humans. But if you can inspire other people, motivate other people, draw other people to you and make them want to work with you, then the sky's the limit on what you can accomplish. But that skill set, that that particular skill is one that's very hard to acquire and takes constant investment and refinement. And that's what I, I counsel people on all the time, including my own daughter, is if you can make other people want to work with you, you can accomplish almost anything or at least give it a really good shot. So that's what I would encourage people to focus on is invest in yourself and really try to develop that skill set of making other people want to work with you. Yeah, I think and if I could rewind to something you just said as well, when you talked about um, being entrepreneurs, we need to be able to adapt because I think we as entrepreneurs, we tend to fall in love with our, our idea or product or service and we think everybody's going to love this, but we need to be able to see the market doesn't care. The market wants what the market wants. So you may think your idea is the greatest, but they may want something else. So as you said, we need to be able to adapt and say, I need to be able to switch this or edit this where the market wants it and I can sell my product, service or idea. Because if we can't do that, we're, like you said, we're dead in the water. No matter how good we think our idea is. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to elaborate on that, Donald, I think one of the things I've learned as an entrepreneur is the best market research is to go and talk to your customers or potential customers. To me, it's fascinating how willing your target market is to tell you exactly what they're looking to buy if you're willing to listen to them. And so part of the problem, part of the issue I've always had as an entrepreneur is you get caught up in your own head. As you just said, uh, you, you tend to develop a very parochial view on what the market wants because you're not out there talking to your potential clients. And even when you're talking to them, you're doing too much talking. You're trying to explain and evangelize and inspire and sell instead of listen. And so I, whenever I meet with a client or a potential client, I set myself a budget of 20% of the meeting for me to be speaking and 80% to be listening. And what I find is my clients, uh, my potential clients are very willing 
to tell me what it is they want to buy from me if I'm willing to listen to what they're saying. And so I think that skill of active listening is critical for entrepreneurship. And when I say active listening, what I mean is when your client is speaking or when anyone is speaking to you, I'm trying not to think about what I want to say in response. Instead, what I'm trying to do is actively listen and onboard what it is they're telling me. And I can formulate a response later. Even if I, there's a delay of three or five or 10 seconds or even 30 seconds uh-huh. after a client has said something, that, that's perfectly reasonable. But what I found in myself is, especially when, when I was younger, I would often be formulating a response while other people were speaking to me. Yeah. And therefore yeah. missing a lot of what was coming in. When investing in a capital raise, or when you're doing a capital raise, what are the main things an investor looks at? I think in this market here, what people are really looking for is a track record that indicates dependability, stability, consistency, reliability, trustworthiness, etc. And so it's very interesting to me that When you get past the initial business plan and the initial uh, projections, uh, financial projections and uh, market projections and regulatory projections, there's a bunch of things we're guessing at when we're out there raising money. Very often in this market, what it comes down to is your counterparty looking at the totality of your interactions in this market over the last, in my case, 30 years, and then making a decision along the lines of, is this a person we want to be associated with? And so it's very interesting. I I advise a lot of entrepreneurs, try to get into community service, try to do something good for your community. And we all want to change the world. We all want to help people, but our Our scope is rather limited as individuals, no matter how successful we may or may not be. And I think what counts for a lot in this market is an indication that you are willing to get back to the community, that you are willing to uh, be here and be part of the fabric of this society. You know, all the usual caveats apply. You, You need to have a cogent business plan. You need to have detailed financial projections. Uh, You need to have some skin in the game in terms of your own personal uh, investment in the business and and your cash inputs. But what I found here is very interesting. When you get past the initial qualifying around business plans and uh, projections, everything else, what people are really looking at are, is this a person we want to associate with? Is this a person we want to be associated with in the market? So does the market perception of this person or this entrepreneurial team jive with our image of ourselves as a company or uh, as an organization? And that's something I think entrepreneurs probably don't appreciate quite as much as they should. What we tend to focus on are financial projections, and and obviously those are very, very important. Um, But I'll tell you what, the day the business starts, the financial projections are incorrect. And they only get more incorrect as time goes on. 
uh, which goes back to our earlier discussion of adaptability and flexibility. But what persists is you. So you're the thing, you're the persistent element in the value equation. And I think venture capitalists and investors understand that and appreciate it. And so, yes, they're validating your business model. They're validating your management team. Uh, they're validating your technology and a lot of other things. But at the end of the day, what they're really doing is looking at you and saying, is this somebody who we want to bring into our circle? Is this someone we want the market to associate with our brand, with our uh, our partnership as individuals, et cetera? And that's really, really critical in this market. That, that's what I would counsel a lot of people to put a little bit more energy into. Okay. Great, great. All right, so let's talk about COVID-19 now. So, I mean, I'm sure that's affected everyone's business, including including yours and around the world, not just Japan, but everywhere around the world. So how has that impacted your businesses and investing projects in 2020? Yeah, this, this has been a really um, negative development that's affected the entire world. So, you know, I have my windows open behind me and the doors closed. I'm the only one in this little office right now. I have my mask over here. I took it off to do this discussion with you. Uh, and all of those are things I normally would not, I would not normally be sitting in this office alone with the windows open. I normally wouldn't have a mask next to me. Personal routine, I, I, I think, One of the things I've done over the years is develop what I consider to be a productive series of personal habits, which become institutional a routine application of those habits. And I view those habits as being very constructive, uh, not only to my professional life, but also to my personal life, my spiritual life, my, my academic life, etc. And the first thing I would say is this COVID virus has disrupted my positive personal routine and my positive personal habits. And I'm sure it's done the same for a lot of people. And so it's kind of wrong footed a lot of us where we were very accustomed to, uh, in my case, waking up at a certain time, uh, doing some meditation, getting out of the house very early, doing some exercise, uh, eating a healthy breakfast, uh, getting to the office at a very early hour before anyone else and getting through a lot of the routine work Uh, so that I can focus on what I consider value-added areas. Uh, but all of a sudden, all of those things are thrown out the window uh, in this situation. So I'd say that's number one. Uh, number two has been the impact on my clients. So as a technology company, as a technology entrepreneur, as a software entrepreneur, I mean, arguably, myself and most of my team can reasonably productively work from home indefinitely as long as we have the requisite infrastructure to do so uh, and we all do we're, we're to some extent all somewhat uh, technology nerds anyway in my world and so we've all got nice setups at home and we've all got our, our cameras and uh, laptops and desktops and tablets and phones set up to do collaborative remote work That's great, but 
for instance, in, in this company, I'm sitting in the office of Fusion Systems, uh, we have a fair number of clients that are luxury retail brands. And okay. obviously those clients are really impacted by this. So, you know, sometimes people say to me, as an entrepreneur in your company, what do you wish for the most? And I always tell them, I wish for my client's success because that is the best thing that can happen to me and to my firm is to have successful clients. And so this COVID issue has really impacted some of my clients very adversely. Uh, and very early on, we reached out to our clients and told them that we're here for them, that we're gonna continue to provide service and support to them, uh, regardless of their ability to necessarily sign contracts or make payments, et cetera. Uh, because I do think our little business as a software and services company is perhaps less immediately affected by not being able to get to the office and work interactively in person. Uh, but certainly some of my clients, that's been the case. Uh, another thing I've tried to focus on is to tell my team to really utilize the hours that they're not commuting productively. So it's pretty average in Tokyo to have a one hour commute to and from the office. And if you can work from home, you're suddenly recapturing 10 hours a week, two hours a day of commuting time. And I really want my team to use that time for personal growth and personal productivity. And they don't need to work. I'd rather they don't work. I'd rather they grow as people, grow as professionals, grow as individuals, uh, you know, learn a language, exercise, um, study, uh, read books, just about anything uh, other than spend a lot of time on social media or uh, watching television or whatever. I don't think those are very productive pursuits. Uh, and so I've really counseled my team here is use these, these hours that you've suddenly fallen into productively uh, and productively in a personal sense. Uh, I think the other aspect of this COVID issue is, of course, uncertainty. So most businesses do not like uncertainty and our clients are no exception. And what tends to happen in uncertain times is companies uh, become like turtles. They, they pull into their shell to protect themselves. And what that means is they're not commissioning new projects. They're not looking at new technology initiatives. Uh, they're not doing research and development, perhaps at the scale they were when there was less uncertainty. And so I think the, the COVID issue has uh, really thrown a spanner into the works in terms of uncertainty. And that will persist as far as I can tell for, for quite a while. Uh, I think the, the last thing I would say about uh, COVID is it, it's really, for me, for my personal skill set, uh, I can't really sell online. I don't know how to do that. I, I, I couldn't sell something to you across the Zoom link. I'm, I'm a face-to-face -face guy. I'm an in-person guy. And so I've developed that skill set over 40 years of sitting across from people in a meeting room and, as I said, listening carefully and attentively to them and trying to establish a rapport in creating a positive vibe and a positive atmosphere, positive trust environment. And I don't have the skill set of doing that online or remotely. And so that's something I need to learn. That's a, that's a personal challenge. Uh, 
for me. Uh, you know, one thing I've noticed, at least in myself, is when I walk around wearing a mask all day, I tend to stop expressing myself facially. If nobody could see it, well, maybe there's no reason to smile or frown or have a puzzled face because people can't tell anyway. And so I'm constantly assessing myself and trying to make sure I don't become stoic and uh, in some ways cold and distant when I do get face to face with people because I've been conditioned by wearing this mask. So to me, that's a personal challenge that's arisen out of this, this COVID issue. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's the humanitarian aspect where your partner is going sick, uh, in some cases, very seriously sick, uh, or family members. I have good friends who have lost family members. Uh, and that takes a toll. That takes a toll not only on, on individuals, but on society as a whole. Uh, and it, it creates a sort of morose, um, almost a sullen environment and atmosphere. And that's not good. That's not conducive to uh, personal growth and fulfillment of human aspiration. And so I think it's been a very, very negative situation. Uh, I'm hopeful, obviously. Uh, entrepreneurs are, are inveterate optimists, probably against all logic and all rationale. I'm optimistic that um, something positive will happen soon. Either the virus will dissipate or get weakened naturally or we'll come up with a vaccine or we'll, we'll have an antidote or uh, all the measures we're taking will create some sort of immune response amongst us. Uh, and this virus will soon be a thing of the past. But right now, I, I think it's had a very, very negative effect uh, across the whole spectrum of business and personal endeavors. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, it's created so much uncertainty that... Yeah, it's definitely not sustainable. So yeah, hopefully something something positive will happen sooner than later. All right, so why don't we move into our lightning right now, the fun part. So I wanted to ask you a series of questions that I think are always quite fun and interesting to answer. So um, Mike, what book or books have greatly um, influenced your life? I, first of all, I have a hard time answering questions quickly. So this is a good challenge for me. Okay. Uh, my favorite author is John Keegan, who is a British military historian. He's unfortunately passed away, uh, but he wrote a book called The Face of Battle that I find very, very compelling and very interesting. Uh, my favorite book of all time and the book that I've read or reread the most times are The Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, obviously not in the original ancient Greek, but in various translations that the those stories were written by Homer and I think run the gamut of uh, human characteristics and emotions under adverse conditions. And so I learned something new every time I read that book. So I think those two are what my, my initial thought is on that question. Okay, yeah, I remember those two from university. Oh, that, those are certainly good ones. But I haven't read those since university. Maybe I should go back and read those since I've had much more life experience now. It might be interesting to read. All right, so how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? I think it makes you humble, for one thing. So going back to what we said earlier about it's what you don't know that really, that won't hurt you. It's what you're sure you do know 
that will hurt you. And in my younger days, I, I didn't have that, the requisite humility to really position myself for success. Mm-hmm. I, I think a little bit of scar tissue, a few failures really did help me because at the end of the day, going back to one of my earlier uh, metaphors about boxing, I forget who said this. Um, one of them, some famous boxer said, it's not how hard you hit, it's how willing you are to get up off the canvas. And so I think being knocked down and getting up gives you a lot of inner strength. It really gives you confidence in your ability to be a persistent actor on the business stage where you know that you're not going to get taken out by one hit or one bad break. And I think that's really important. That's an important lesson that I learned a long time ago, and it stood with me ever since. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually heard another saying along those lines that you actually never fail until you don't get up. So as long as you're getting back up, you're not failing anyway, because there's lesson learned in every lesson learned in every failure. So until you don't get up, you haven't failed. I like that one. Yep. Okay, so if you could have an advertisement anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? I would hope what it would say is if you work with this guy, meaning me, you will advance your career at a disproportionate pace to what you would do anywhere else. And to extrapolate on that, what I mean is, as an entrepreneur, it's very rare for me to be able to pay top dollar for good people or to offer um, a great office and a great office environment. We, We don't spend a lot of money on fixed costs as entrepreneurs. But what I do want to do is people in situations where they will grow as as professionals and as people where they will learn a lot and where their career will advance in sort of dog years. So one year with us and your career will advance seven years as opposed to anywhere else. And as I said before, you know, if you can inspire people and you can make people want to work with you, there's nothing you can accomplish. And I think being able to have that advertisement, which attracts those people, is what I would want to have up there. Okay. Okay, excellent. All right, so in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habits has most improved your life? Probably my focus on nutrition. And so, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, When I went to school, elementary school back in the 60s and and junior high school and high school in the 70s the school lunch was um a sloppy joe and a coke and a bag of chips and no offense to any of them those provide sloppy joes or, or bags of chips or cokes but uh that became my my default nutritional profile and um it took me a while to break those habits frankly. And over the last five years, I've really refocused myself nutritionally uh, and been very, very selective, very much more selective about the balance of food and drink I'll I'll accept and the amounts that I'm willing to put into my body. 
And I think the results have been very, very positive for me in terms of uh, energy, fitness, uh, fitness uh, ability to sleep seven or eight hours a night, etc. cetera. Uh, and I, I intend to continue improving in that area for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think you and I grew up in similar environments. And I think, yeah, I look back to how we used to eat growing up. It's just, yeah, it's amazing that we even survived at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty scary. Even, you know, like you say, even the school lunches they had, I mean, they weren't. I wonder if they're still serving that kind of food in school lunches now because it wasn't by no means healthy in any way. Agree. So, all right. So what are, what are, what are bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day for people new to investing or entrepreneurship? I think the the bad recommendations I hear are basically around optimizing personal financial success. So I'm a big believer in leaving money on the table in every deal and in sharing the wealth in every deal. I don't think we're playing a zero-sum game. I think if we look at our the totality of our careers as business people, we'll be involved in many, many deals over our career. And I think it's wrong to try to optimize around any one deal at the expense of everyone else that's in that deal. And so my, my personal philosophy is always to give up something, leave something on the table, uh, exceed everyone else's expectations in the deal, now, whatever it is they thought they were going to get, I'll slice off a piece of my action and make sure they get a little bit more than what they expected. And I find that to be the appropriate, proper way to conduct myself in business. And it does make people want to work with you again in the future. Oh, that's, a, that's some good advice. But yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, when doing deals and negotiating, y'all, I think the tendency is to not be beat, right? And try to get yep. as much as you can and not let the other guy get over on you, as you say so. I mean, I think yep. that would be a wise advice, definitely. Okay, so I know like guys like you, I mean, very busy, played in school, so I think you always have to be kind of good at saying no sometimes. So in the, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Actually, I've been much better at saying no to the, the little voice that sits on my shoulder sometimes trying to get me to do lazy or stupid things. Um, I think it's like we, as we said, we grew up in very similar environments and it's the old cartoons where you have the angel and the devil whispering to you all the time. Uh, and I've become much better at saying no to that little devil demon thing that's trying to get me to do dumb things or inappropriate things or lazy things. Uh, you know, my general approach to life is to basically say yes to anyone who requests a meeting or requests interaction with me because I learn something new every time I speak to people Uh, and I was very fortunate to have some senior people behave in a similar fashion to me many many years ago and and give me the benefit of their time and and wisdom Uh, I think I'm always happy to engage in community service to the extent my time allows it. So 
Actually, I'll extrapolate, although I know this is the lightning round. I did want to say this, but I think one important piece of advice for entrepreneurs is around compartmentalization of their personal time. So the one thing that is universal across this planet is we all start every week with 168 hours, 24 hours, seven days a week. Doesn't matter if you're the richest guy in the world or if you're in some very, very uh, underprivileged or third world situation, you still have your 168 hours. And how you choose to spend those hours are entirely under your control. And so in my case, what I tend to do is budget around or exactly 60, 60 hours a week for my business activities, my, my commercial activities, uh, 30 hours a week for uh, family and community service activities. I try to sleep eight hours a night, which is another 56 hours a week. And that leaves me with 22 hours every week to essentially do what I want to do. And 22 hours is a lot of time. Actually, that's three hours a day. Yeah, yeah. And right. so, you know, I can go to the gym, I can read a book, um, I can watch a video if I, if I choose, I can take a long walk, um, I can hang around with friends and exchange information and learn from them. So I, I think what I've gotten better at saying no to are profligate, expenditures of my 22 hours, my, my personal time every week, uh, and try to keep those hours focused on personal development activities and on productive activities. Oh, interesting, very good. Yeah, and one thing I can vouch for, I mean, I, I think you definitely are generous with your time for other entrepreneurs helping people, because I think we met maybe 18 months ago now and you've been very generous of your time with me and i think myself and any entrepreneur would appreciate appreciate that so i mean i think that's that's that's, uh, that's great though hopefully you'll continue all right Absolutely. so last question last question when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused what do you do let's take a long walk so i i love to walk and walking is sort of meditative for me and it's not uncommon for me to do say a 15 or 20 kilometer walk where I'm thinking through whatever it is that's uh, a challenge to me at that time and I find that if I get into a good walking rhythm and relegate the challenge away from my conscious mind almost into my subconscious I very often come up with approach that may not resolve the problem, at least reduces the complexity or reduces my sense that the problem is overwhelming. And so I've learned that over the years that for me, walking uh, long distances alone is a very productive activity. Uh, there's a fitness aspect to it, obviously, but there's also a fresh air, sunshine aspect to it. And then a, a meditative aspect to it. And it is interesting because sometimes I'll do these walks and I'll find that I, I look up and I realize I'm a place I didn't even know. I don't know how I got here and I don't know where I am. Uh, luckily, Tokyo is a very safe city to do that in. And so you can't really wander into the wrong part of town or, or uh, get to any trouble. But 
that's my that tends to be my approach, Donald. When when I feel like things are uh, aggregating beyond my control to manage or beyond my control to compartmentalize, is just take a long walk and try not to actively solve the problem, but in engineering terms, relegate it to the background and let let that processor handle things and see if something bubbles up out of that. Uh, background process that will help me address the challenge at hand. Okay, awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So yeah, why don't we stop it there for today, Mike? I know you have a busy day, so we want to thank you for your time today coming on our first inaugural part podcast. Uh, real quick, though, if anybody wants to get in touch with you about collaborating, doing any kind of business, how, how would they contact you? The easiest way, because I don't use any social media, the easiest way is just uh, hit me up on Gmail. It's mike.alfant at gmail.com. So M-I-K-E dot A-L-F-A-N-T, A-L-F-A-N-T. Yeah, that's my last name, at gmail.com. I'm happy to talk to anyone at any time. And uh, thank you for your friendship and companionship as well, Donald. It's been great getting to know you. And uh, yeah, it's been a good 18 months since we met. All right. Thank you, Mike. And likewise, and take care. Have a great day. I shall, my friend. See you later. All right. See you later.